Hello, and welcome to What Are You?, a podcast exploring aspects of race and identity through a biracial and multiracial lens. I'm your co-host, Paula Thomas, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stacey Thomas. What up, y'all? Today, we are joined by a special guest, Anne-Marie Ferruzzi, who is here to help us in our discussion of racial identity development. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Hi, Paula and Stacey. It's great to be here. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I work in public education alongside Stacy. So we are co-workers. And my background is in minority health and health disparities. And I'm currently doing work on racial identity development at my place of work. And I am a Bay Area native. Um, so I was born and raised and currently live here in the Bay Area. And I also identify as multiracial. So my father is Italian and my mother is Filipina and Chinese. Glad to have another multiracial sister join in our discussion today. So Stace, where should we begin with our discussion of racial identity development? Well, Paula, in our last episode, you mentioned that it wasn't until you went to college that you began to mull over what it meant to be black. So my first question is, how did you think of yourself racially before college? Well, I knew I was black and Chinese before I went to college, but I didn't know what that meant in a larger context, meaning I didn't know what it meant to be black and Chinese in the world. And I don't think I knew what the value of that was to me personally. So what was your journey like in understanding your blackness and becoming a racial being? Huh. You know, I don't think I've ever reviewed or documented that journey. And and to be honest, I, I don't even know where to begin to even talk about that or think think about that. Well, as you mentioned in our last podcast, that after high school is a time when many of people of color, whether it's entering the workforce or going to college, often go through this journey in terms of having a better understanding of what it means to be a racial being, and particularly in a white-dominant society we have here in the U.S., and so Anne-Marie is here to help us understand and put some vocabulary into this journey. Exactly. So as you said, Stacey, many people of color go through this journey of racial identity development over the course of their lives. And lucky for us, there have been studies on this topic and frameworks developed for us to better understand the journey that people go through in order to recognize themselves or acknowledge themselves as racial beings. And there are different frameworks for different races and ethnicities that have been developed. So for example, an Asian American model, a Latinx model, black, Filipino, sexual orientation, um, lots of different frameworks for different identities and how those develop in individuals. There's even a model for white identity development. So what do these frameworks include? 
Well, they break down the journey into different stages and help us understand the many ways that we ourselves try to understand our racial identity. And I'll say that the reason why I like these is that in doing race work, according to the San Francisco Coalition of Essential Small Schools, transformation happens across the three A's. So these are alone, inaffinity, and across difference. And these frameworks can be a useful tool for all three of these formats, as it can provide insight into ourselves during our alone and our affinity work, and then also insight into others in our across-difference work and um, in talking to and understanding others. And so for these frameworks, according to the Institute for Social Change, they are found mostly in psychology and therapy literature and sometimes are used by therapists in order to understand their patients more fully and can be more broadly applied to better understand how individuals function in their community, in their family, and in um, organizational settings. That sounds great. We should dive into some of these frameworks with our audience and, and break some of these down. That sounds great. So maybe a place I would start is with William Cross's model of Black identity development. And although it has some unique characteristics for Black people, it also has some generalities that could be used for most people of color. Sounds good. The Cross model has five stages that I can take you through. Um, but I want to preface this discussion by saying that these stages are not necessarily chronological. And you can be in any of these stages at any time. And you might actually cycle through them multiple times. You might jump around. So they're not necessarily linear. Um, and I would say they're also not necessarily definitive, but really just meant to be a guide or a framework for us to understand our own identity development. So with that said, the first stage of the Black American racial identity development model is called the pre-encounter. And in this stage, according to Cross, beings absorb these beliefs and values of dominant white culture, including this notion that white is right and black is wrong, for example. And there's largely a de-emphasis on one's racial group and membership. And you're unaware, for the most part, of race or its implications. That part that you just said, Anne-Marie, really resonates with me. You said uh, absorbing many beliefs and values of dominant white culture. And that reminds me of the Dahl test. And for those of our audience who don't know, the Dahl test was developed by psychologists in the 1940s to study Black children's attitudes on race. So Black children, as young as three, were given two dolls, one white and one Black. And they were asked several questions such as, which one is pretty? Which one is ugly? Which one is good? You know, which one is bad? And overwhelmingly, the black children rejected the black dolls, you know, which, which represented themselves and most preferred the white dolls and assigned the white dolls with, with positive characteristics and the black dolls with negative ones. I mean, this is children as young as three. Yep, that's a really great example of this pre-encounter phase. 
Yeah, and these tests have been conducted many times over the years, and even in the most recent iterations, unfortunately, not much has changed. Yeah, and I want to clear something up in terms of some of the language that was used in order to describe this pre-encounter phase where largely unaware of race or racial implications, but that does not necessarily mean that young people do not see racial differences. They just are not completely understanding possibly the messaging that comes from dominant culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense where it's like I, I know growing up that I'm Filipina, Chinese and Italian, but I don't actually know what that means. At least I didn't mm-hmm. as a very young person um, on, you know, how people would receive me or, you know, what that means in terms of Help me out here, Stacy. Yeah, so in terms of what it means socially. So a, a lot of that what happens is we inherently know that we're people of color, but we might be taking in this idea that we are not the norm mm-hmm. and that white is the central idea in terms of where everybody who is quote unquote normal, that's where they're at. And so we might not feel like that we can totally fit that, or we may be thinking that we're less than, which happens very often. Mm-hmm. Hence the doll test. Right. And the pre-encounter phase would be a time when individuals are largely unaware of that and, and don't really understand you know, the, that reality. Mm-hmm. Which takes us to the encounter phase. So you can best understand the pre-encounter phase through the encounter phase. So for this stage, individuals are forced by an event or series of events to acknowledge the impact of racism in their life and the reality that one can truly not be white. And you're sort of forced to focus on your identity as a member of a group that is targeted by racism. So your awareness kind of grows and maybe through like some sort of event or awakening or the, a, a jolt, you, you actually start to realize how race or that race does have an impact on your life. Yeah, and I know for many people, a seminal event of when that jolt happens is following high school, uh, starting a job, or going to um, college, university. You're basically moving into a new community. And because of the history of redlining in this country, which is segregation by housing, people are are usually confined to one particular community, particularly when they're young and don't often have the chance to go to different communities and see what that experience is like. So they're not having those different kinds of experiences. A part that sticks out to me in your description, Anne-Marie, is the part where you said the reality that one cannot truly be white. And and my experience was that, that once you realize that the system is set up for white people and that you'll never be part of that group because, you know, you can't change your skin color or your heritage— you, you begin to realize that you'll always exist 
outside of dominant culture and that the opportunities for you and your family are greatly diminished. And that can cause a lot of anger, frustration, and you know, even some despair. And as you said, that description moves you towards, you know, focusing your identity as a member of a group targeted by racism. Yeah, I know for me, I went to a, a diverse racially high school and the larger, I would say, groups of people that were there were mostly of Filipino and Mexican descent. And then after that, it went to, you know, white and, you know, smattering of different other folks, whether they're Korean, Vietnamese, etc., black. And I know for me, going to college was the first time that white was the majority of the people who actually went to that school. Mm -hmm. And their influence was definitely palpable to me. And it was something that definitely caught me unaware. I wasn't expecting that. Mm. It's something that we don't talk about often when we're in school. We don't often talk about race or when you're going to go to university or to college, what that's going to be like culturally and what that can do. So I know that... I started moving into the next phase once I had this encounter. Yeah. And what that makes me think of is that there can be a difference between maybe as a young person, for example, being told that you are not white um, or for me, for example, that I have non-white identities and actually really internalizing and being aware of that as an individual human being and recognizing that maybe through different spaces that you're in, you actually aren't part of the, what I would call default culture or the, the norm. Right. Mm. And that systems like education maybe aren't necessarily built for you um, or other people of color in America. So, it's this idea that you're you're being forced in a way to reckon with the fact that you are a racial being in a system that necessarily wasn't set up for you. Yeah. So that actually brings us to, yeah, and that brings us to the next phase of immersion slash immersion. And it's this phase in which you're kind of moving from this identification of the fact or the idea that you are a racial being into this desire to surround oneself with symbols of your racial identity and um, signs and signals of your racial identity. And that can also include active avoidance of symbols of whiteness. And so you might be actually actively seeking out opportunities to explore your own history, your culture, and you might do that with support of your peers or your parents that are from your own racial background. Yeah, that that goes in line is what I previously mentioned. I said, for me, the encounter phase was going to a university and my university was only 2% black. Hmm. 
And so there was not that many of us there. And, you know, a lot of schools have this orientation week or this time where they welcome week where you just kind of come to the campus and there are no classes and you're just kind of getting familiar. So my school had one of those. And for one week prior, like five days prior, we had our welcome week orientation week. And I distinctly remember many black students coming to me and just didn't know me, just came up saying, hey, what's up? What's going on? What's your name? What's your major? And just getting to know folks. And so there are a lot of people going through this phase. And that helped me go through the immersion, immersion piece where I wanted to join the Black Student Union. Actually, it's called the African American Student Union, my campus. And I started off as an electrical engineering major. So I joined the National Society of Black Engineers. So it was really important for me to surround myself with other people who were going through similar things in terms of being a Black student at the university. Right. It's it's almost this idea of affinity, right? So you are kind of actively putting yourself in spaces with people who are like you and who share common experiences. I wonder if in university you can become more radicalized, quote unquote, because that's a time, especially with the rise of ethnic studies programs, you begin to learn more about your communities and their history and their history of being oppressed. And then you seek out others who have also had that experience and who are also going through that journey as well at the same time. That makes a lot of sense because in often in K-12 education, we're not taught our histories as people of color. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, largely what we talk about in terms of even the pre-encounter stage because we're getting all these messages that uh, we don't matter. And when I say that, it's because we're not brought up in our terms of our contributions, mm-hmm. you know, our stories in terms of how we uh, either came to this country or were already in this country before, you know, Westerners, white Europeans, you know, folks started moving westward. We don't know that largely in K-12. And so in the university, we're starting to find more and more about that in terms of really digging into uh, some of the the history. Yeah, and you also said, Anne-Marie, for this immersion, immersion phase, that there is a desire to surround oneself with visible symbols of one's racial identity. And that got me reminiscing about you know, wearing African symbols and, uh, you know, wearing, you know, paraphernalia with images of some of the leaders uh, that that you just have just learned about, whether it be people like Thurgood Marshall or Malcolm X or Cesar Chavez. And (laughs) I'm I'm just reminiscing that Egyptian onks were... We're very popular for a while as well. Nothing wrong with an unk. <laughs> but, you know, you know, also being, and this is actually cool that you, you, you said this in the beginning, Anne-Marie, which was that, you know, these, these phases are cyclical or non-chronological. And I, and I will say, too, that 
being Chinese American, I, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I have grown a bigger friend base of Chinese and Chinese American friends. And actually that has really like helped strengthen the value of being Chinese to me. And, and I think it's due to that sort of community of finding um, folks that have a shared uh, history and experience. Right. And I think, Paula, that's a great segue to the next phase, which is called internalization. And in this phase, you're becoming more secure in your sense of racial identity. And that can happen through a number of ways, including, I think, the example that you just shared, Paula, where maybe you're starting to surround yourself more with people um, who share similar experiences as you or share your racial identity. And you're starting to go deeper into your roots and learning your culture and your history and, and sharing that with others. And so for this framework, for the Black American racial identity development, Cross says that in this phase, pro-Black attitudes in particular can become more expansive more open and less defensive. And for Blacks, they may be willing to establish meaningful relationships, even with those who are non-Black, who do acknowledge and you know, respect your self-definition. So it's this idea of you know, maybe even moving beyond your friend group or beyond your racial identity group to actually start you know, forming relationships and, you know, as we would call them like allyships or even co-conspiratorships with others who are not part of your identity, but who do recognize you um, as you are. Yeah. As a young person, you generally have a very similar friend group throughout your development. You know, if you're, do you have some people that you may have been friends with even since high school or middle school or even elementary and when you're in that, you may still have those throughout your K-12 schooling. But then you start becoming an adult, you actually have this opportunity to actually pick your friend group and have more of a choice rather than saying, these people just are in my friend group. And the one thing I want to point out in terms of for folks in, for folks of color in particular is that when people are making these new friendships, they feel safe to do so. So I think in order for folks to start to really internalize this, they feel very safe in order to branch out into other people that they might not have made a connection with otherwise. The thing that prevents that is I might not feel okay. I don't think that's okay for me to do that because I don't think that there can be a, a safe way for me to interact with those people on a friendship level. Hmm. So what you're saying is that once you're secure in your blackness or ethnicity, then you are more open to having friendships and relationships outside of that. Yeah, the security in one's own, if you're black in your own blackness, can definitely help with bridging and forming some relationships with folks who are non-black. But you have to be secure and comfortable to do that effectively. Not saying that you can't make those 
kind of bridges and you have to be totally like, I know everything there is about being being black and now I'm super strong and now I'm able to do that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it definitely helps if you are secure in that in order for you to actually make truly meaningful connections with people who aren't black. Mm-hmm. And this is particularly for people of color making connections with people who are white because a lot of times as people of color, we may often see people who have white as part of their identity as an oppressor. Mm -hmm. And so it might be difficult for me to make that kind of connection. But like if you start really truly internalizing it, that might become easier for you to do. That might become easier to do if you feel super secure and mm. not always thinking that, let's be real, like look over your shoulder or think things are always going to be an unsafe encounter. Um, if we haven't totally internalized our own sense of strong racial identity. Right. And that makes me think, too, about external factors as well that might actually be at play in terms of if and how people can actually go through this phase. Like I'm thinking that in particular spaces, like it actually might be unsafe for you to, you know, start socializing with mm -hmm. or gathering with people who are like you. And, you know, that might be looked mm -hmm. upon as like, Ooh, I don't know. Like these people are starting to gather, you know, from, from the dominant perspective and, and there might actually be fear. And then, you know, so I think that that also really matters too in in these in the spaces that you're in. Like, is it even a safe space for you to, you know, start forming relationships with people who both are like you, and you know, other people um, who might not have the same identity as you, but who you know would serve as allies or or would you know maybe defend you. And so that makes me think of the fifth stage, which is called internalization commitment. So the stage we just talked about was internalization. And this fifth stage is called internalization commitment. And it's about finding ways to translate your own personal sense of being a person of color, or in this case, your own personal sense of blackness into an action plan or this general sense of commitment to concerns of blacks as a group that is sust sustained over time. So what this I think is pointing to is, you know, really having comfort with your own race and those around you, racial beings around you, and actually taking steps or actions to work towards the, the betterment or the solidarity of the group. So what you're saying is that once you've owned your blackness or or secure in your blackness or ethnic identity, you are then interested in supporting, you know, black girls who code or black owned restaurants or mm -hmm. an Asian American community health center. Uh, is that what you mean? Yeah, right. Like this this commitment to this commitment to supporting others who share that same racial identity. Yeah. So we're definitely moving from being 
an individual and moving more towards a collective effort or slash communal concerns. You know, I'm reminded of actually, you can hear me say this again, I'm a big sports fan, the NBA just restarted up. And one of the things that the players union really, really fought for in restarting the NBA was that the food that was going to be provided within the NBA bubble in Orlando was given to black restaurants and black caterers. Mm. Like that was super huh. important. That was super important for them to do so and to do that. Or That's cool. you might you might be of Latinx or um, Asian Pacific Islander descent. And so maybe there are issues involving immigration that are really important to you. Mm. Or um, just for any person of color, or it could be indigenous as well, just like maybe there are health concerns that are yeah. particular to our own communities that we want to address, whether that's certain uh, pre-existing conditions, food deserts, etc. But we really are focused on those that affect populations that uh, we identify with, and not just us individually, but we're looking at a greater whole. Mm. Right. I love that, Stacey. So to recap the stages of Black American racial identity, we have pre-encounter, encounter, immersion, immersion, internalization, and then internalization commitment. And I think what I want to share is that, again, while this may be describing, according to this researcher, the Black American racial identity development, this could be a good access point for other people of color. And as I mentioned earlier, there are other frameworks that have been created specifically for other ethnicities, Asian American, Latinx, Filipinos, whites, even sexual orientation. And the idea is that this framework that we went over today is, is a good starting point for people of color in general, and then using that to allow you to move into your more specific identity and uh, identity development for, for your specific ethnicity or race. Yeah, I'd love to briefly review one or two phases of one of the other models. Um, I was looking over the Asian American framework, and there are two that stand out to me. One is white identification, which is, you know, individuals actively attempt to assimilate and therefore try to identify as white to avoid criticisms of differences. Mm -hmm. And the other that also stood out to me was the awakening to social political consciousness so where individuals have realizations that acts of discrimination stem from the structure of race in our society and then begin to join forces with other oppressed groups to uplift and move race forward. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about under the current climate we're currently in this COVID-19 shelter-in-place pandemic, unfortunately. But there's a lot of discrimination that has been occurring in this country, particularly towards Asian Americans. And there have been outwardly hostile acts towards Asian Americans in this country. And so for a lot 
of those people, they're experiencing some of this discrimination for the first time, or they're becoming aware of it, even though they may have experienced it and not even been conscious about it. But these outward manifestations has definitely led to a lot of awakening for a lot of Asian American folks in this country. And I would say that is definitely not have just been an awakening, but has started to lead more towards some action from the Asian American community. I've anecdotally had a lot of conversations with some of my Asian Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, and a lot of them are having conversations with their friends, with their uh, family members, particularly older family members, about how uh, race has been used as a tool to continue to oppress and discriminate not just black people or Latinx people or indigenous folks, but to Asian Pacific Islander folks as well. Yeah. And I think that's a great example, Stacey, of how the phase of internalization commitment that we went over with the Mm, black American racial identity development can overlap or be an access point to um, phases or stages in, in other racial identity development models for for other races, in particular, in this example, Asian Americans. You can kind of see the overlap between them. And I do want to reiterate that these frameworks are not meant to be fully definitive or capture every experience of every possible phase that people go through on their identity development journey. Really meant to be a supportive tool, or at least in the way that they've helped me is to support my own self-awareness and also allow me to have empathy towards maybe my younger self Mm. when I was struggling with certain aspects of my identity. And it helped me have this empathy also for others and the experiences that they're having as they possibly reckon with their own racial identity. Yeah, I like the idea of not only grace for yourself, but for others as well. And I really like, Emery, how you define this as tools. And this isn't necessarily a definitive way in terms of like how all racial development happens for, you know, if you want to get specific in terms of population, for all people of color or for all black people or for all Asian Americans. But it's it's just more of an access point mm-hmm. for reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really latch on to that idea of grace and empathy especially towards your younger self. And I think Hmm. we can be really hard on ourselves. And like you said, these phases are fluid and sometimes cyclical. And we can get on ourselves, you know, by, you know, asking like, why didn't I understand this 10 years ago? And I've realized that you have to let that go and take a step back and realize that this is where you are in your present moment and Give your younger self that grace. So, final question. Was there a phase that we touched upon during this discussion today that was particularly difficult for you? So, what I would say for me, definitely pre-encounter and encounter phase. You know, and kind of like really, you know, the large space in between those. Because there were things that I was subjected to in terms of 
racial abuse or discrimination that I experienced that I didn't necessarily have language for or had to articulate or push against. And being somebody who was definitely in the minority, you know, in a lot of spaces, whether it's sports teams or whether it's at school, even in peer group, I didn't really know how to either, one, articulate how I was feeling, one, identify how I was feeling, two, articulate that to other people, and again, we talked about previously, extend that grace to myself of not even being okay with not even knowing. You know, that's that was a kind of big thing because a lot of those things were very hurtful at the time. And sometimes I even reflect on it. There were hurtful sets I didn't even run, even know that were hurtful at the time. But now I think about it like, yeah, actually, that was pretty, that was pretty, pretty bad and severe. And I shouldn't have been subject to that. And that was really harmful. Uh, so that, that, that is definitely, you know, that pre-encounter encounter. And like, I think the large space there for me is definitely, uh, the most difficult and challenging, uh, in, in my development. Thanks for sharing that Stace. How about for you, Anne-Marie? So for me, many of the challenges that I've encountered are during what Cross calls this immersion immersion phase where you're exploring your own history and you're exploring your own identity and culture and starting to gain a more solid footing in your racial identity and your identity as a person of color. And at the same time, you can actively be distancing yourself from symbols of whiteness and symbols of the dominant culture. And for me, as someone who has white as part of their identity, that's particularly difficult for me as it means that I am also at the same time denying a part of my own identity and denying my family and Mm. the history there. And for me, that can actually produce a feeling of guilt and feeling like I have to deny part of who I am Mm. in order to feel and be fully Filipino and Chinese or have those identities as part of who I am. So that's actually why the framework in particular for biracial and multiracial people has been particularly helpful for me because it does address this idea of how to assimilate and uh, integrate multiple aspects of your racial identities. So maybe that's something that we could explore together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we've explored the development for monoracial people of color, stay tuned for our next episode of the What Are You podcast, where Anne-Marie will return and lead us through the racial identity framework for biracial and multiracial people. Thank you for joining us today, Anne-Marie, and for walking us through all of this. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And thank you out there for joining us here at the What Are You podcast. To be notified of future episodes, please subscribe on your podcast platforms. If you have any questions, feedback, or topic ideas, or are interested in the copies of the frameworks we mentioned throughout the episode, please email us at whatareyou1619 at gmail.com. I'm your host, Paula Thomas. And I'm Stacy Thomas. Stay safe and healthy. <laughs> <laughs>